Welcome back to the Employment Law Podcast. I'm Brian Powell, Director of PCC Employment Lawyers. Um, I'm joined again today by Emily Riera, the firm's associate, and Essie Marivara and Courtney West, who are both solicitors here. And um, today we're going to tackle the issue of the legislation that is currently um, been passed by the lower house um, and is currently before the Senate, the IR Omnibus Bill. Um, just a warning, it's like after 5pm on a Wednesday and we're drinking wine, so <laughs> this shouldn't be taken as legal advice in any way. Um, one of the things I really want to focus in on is uh, casual employment and the changes that the bill has addressed with casual employment. Um, for regular listeners, you'll know that our very first episode back in July 2019 was on this, so this is by way of an update. I, I listened to it the other day and... Um, Jake and I were talking very much about how it had been scheduled for legislative reform. Um, you know, a little over a year and a half later, we have that legislation. Um, it's being sold very much as a coronavirus thing in the media, but I, I really think this has been on the go personally since um, since two thousand and nine and the and the consolidated amendments to the Fair Work system back then. It's it's sort of long overdue this casual issue. Um, so we're going to address it today, talk about the legislation. But I think before we talk about the legislation, we also need to just recap the status quo. Um, I had the misfortune of delving into the comments section of uh, the Facebook page of a, of a well-known politician the other day and reading what the general public was saying about this bill. And it was frightening in, in a sense that it, the, the, the reality of the changes has not really found its way into the mainstream media um, like so many things, this has been a um, an opportunity to create a lot of hysteria, um, political hysteria. Um, I, I don't see the changes that way. Certainly, they're they're quite bold. But I think you know, in, before you can talk about what legislation does, you need to acknowledge the status quo first. Otherwise, um, you're not really identifying the changes. So. I think there's really four issues that we want to discuss that's in the legislation today. They're very similar issues to that that we discussed in the podcast back in 2019. The first one is the definition of casual. This is this is really our... The, 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 the Fair Work Act does not define casual. I, ironically, last month the podcast was about independent contractors, which is another major... Well, the, the independent contractors versus employees and, and another major concept that's not defined in the Fair Work Act is employee but um, also casual is not defined in the Act. It's not to say that there are not definitions um, and really what we're seeing over the last couple of years in the courts is the issue that Jake and I talked about, you know, nearly two years ago about the sort of conflict between the various definitions of casual. We have the, the common law definition of casual, but then also we have the Fair Work Act defining certain types of casuals for the purposes of, of statutory protection. So, for instance, we have the uh, um, long-term casual, um, who is a, a, a regular and systematic casual for more than 12 months that's entitled to parental leave. We also have the regular and systematic casual um, that is protected by unfair dismissal, in some cases after six months of service and, and for small businesses after a year of service. As well as that, in all of the modern awards that, that contemplate um, conversion, a, a right to request casual conversion, 
Um, we have a concept known as the regular casual. As well as that, I think the modern awards will generally define casual employees um, with, with various um, formulations. Often a casual employee is engaged and paid as such, etc. But perhaps more relevantly, what modern awards do in almost all cases is they will define part-time employment by relatively stringent formalities and then deem employees to be casual if the formalities of part-time employment are not met. So it's always been my view that the, that the fair work system should be, it was intended to operate harmoniously. So the use of the word casual in the national employment standards should correlate for the purposes of, of a modern award covered employee to the definitions in the modern, modern award. Um, the situation otherwise is pretty absurd. As it happens, um, and as I preempted in, in July 2019, I was wrong. The, the courts say that the common law should apply um, and apply even when that's inconsistent with what's, what's basically stated in the modern award. Um, and it's where we get some of the cases that have been very well publicised, Rosado, Skeen, which are the work pack cases where employees have successfully argued that they were not actually casuals and made significant claims for annual leave and, and personal leave retrospectively. This is the thing that's gotten the industry groups in a, in a panic. Um, it's estimated to be a, a liability of potentially $8 billion, I saw, if, if every casual in Australia made, made a claim for unpaid annual leave and sick leave, etc. And, and the cynical side of me says that's really the thing that's prompting this legislation above all other things. Um, because that brings us really to, to, to issue number two. We've got the, the lack of a definition of casual, but issue number two is really the issue of casual loading now in circumstances where casuals are paid, well, in all circumstances of, of casual employment in Australia, whether that's under the minimum wage orders or under the modern awards, casuals are entitled to a 25% loading and it's, it's recognised that part of that loading is um, paid instead of those employees receiving annual leave and personal leave entitlements. So in the Rosado and Skeen cases, even though allegedly the, employ the employer paid the employees a 25% loading, the court refused to offset that loading against the claim for entitlements. And we've had some skirmishes between Parliament and court over the, over the intervening years because the Parliament have actually, you know, they've made delegated legislation through the Fair Work regulations trying to provide that offset. In the second case before the federal court, that failed as well. So the other issue really to be discussed by the legislation and which has been um, proposed by the legislation as a change is, is what to do with that casual loading in circumstances of a claim. The other big issue that um, is, is subject to the legislation has been subject to a lot of discussion over recent years is the issue of flexibility for part-time workers. Um, there's been a, a, a push from the sort of left side of politics to, to suggest that there's an over-casualisation of the workforce, um, that a lot of people that are not genuine casuals are engaged as casuals to, to prevent them having job security, et cetera, et cetera, and that's a very valid argument in a lot of cases. On the other side, industry groups are saying, well, we need flexibility and the, the modern award provisions in relation to part-time flexibility of hours are, are prohibitive for, for most um, 
most circumstances where you, you know, most industrial circumstances. And the big one that's often raised is hospitality, where really having fixed hours and anything beyond that should be paid as overtime is really prohibitive for part-time employment, which is why hospitality has such a high proportion of casual employees, according to the industry. Um, I think the NDIS in social services industries has had a really similar effect on, um, on, the, on the sort of workforce patterns. Um, the NDIS has given a lot of control to consumers and has created a situation where casual work is the only um, tenable or sustainable way to provide that. Um, and there's some issues there that certainly industry groups there are, are, are quite concerned about, but quite rightly, um, the, the unions and, and the ALP are, are, are pushing this idea that casualisation is, is being overused in the Australian workforce. And I think given the numbers, at least to some extent, that has to be accepted. The final issue, which has been a big one, is casual conversion. Um, now, certainly, the status quo at the moment is that um, all award employees, as of, I think, July 2018, um, have a right to request conversion from casual employment um, after they have been after they have been sort of deemed to be a regular casual. I think that's 12 months in most cases. So the right to request is only a right to request. Um, it can be refused at the moment by employers on reasonable business grounds. So the legislation addresses and also addresses a heap of other stuff, but the, the legislation addresses those four things. The purpose of today's podcast is to really try and unpick what does the legislation actually say or, or what does the proposed legislation say um, and, and what is the substantive changes and, and really what has been said um, by the various stakeholders along the way on each category. So Courtney, I'm going to get you to start. Yes. Um, so I guess I'll just start with the definition of yeah, casual Yeah, what, what is being proposed? Yeah, so what is being proposed is basically it will be defined in the legislation um, and it will be based on the offer of employment. Under the new legislation, the meaning of a casual employee will be when an offer of employment was made on the basis that the employer makes no firm advance commitment to continuing an indefinite work according to agreed an agreed pattern of work and the person accepts the offer on that basis and the person is employed on the basis of that acceptance. So then um, from there, there are factors in the legislation which you can consider when determining whether the employee has employer sorry has made no firm advance commitment to continuing any definite work, which is whether the employer can elect to offer work and whether the person can accept or reject the work whether the person will work only as required, whether the employment is described as casual employment, and also whether the employee will be entitled to a casual loading or a prescribed casual rate of pay. Yeah, so, I mean, just to, to sort of stop you there, it, on the face of it, it, it seems like the legislation's done a couple of things. They've, they've borrowed the wording of the Rosado case in terms of the um, guarantee of ongoing employment um, and, and it sounds a bit like the the common law test but but critically what they're saying is that this needs to be determined on the basis of the engagement so they're, they're you know where we had the two ideas we had a lot of the modern award idea are you engaged and paid as a casual 
the commoner idea or what was actually substantively happening, they're kind of putting a foot in both camps with what they're doing there. Yeah, so yeah. what they've also included in the legislation is that whether an employee is a casual employee will be based on the offer and acceptance and not any subsequent contact conduct of the parties and therefore a casual employee will remain a casual employee until either conversion which we'll discuss later or they accept an alternative offer of employment yeah okay so that clears up really what what the industry groups have been fearing and that is that you know you engage someone in good faith as a um as a casual you know three years later they've done regular shifts and they then claim their full time basically what the legislation is, is going to say in relation to that is that if they are engaged as a casual um, and, and they work in accordance with that engagement, then they're still going to be a casual. The legislation also specifically said that a regular pattern of hours does not itself indicate a firm advancement to commitment continuing in indefinite yeah, work. Yeah. So just making sure they've drawn that distinction as well. Yeah, okay. And what are people saying um, so I looked at some I of the... I know what I think. <laughs> <laughs> There's been a lot of discussion about this. So what did you look at, Essie? I was looking at some of the submissions to the Senate inquiry. And um, so I, I, I just chose a couple. Um, I had a look at Professor David Peetz's uh, submission. He's from the Griffith University. Um, and I also looked at the submissions by um, other university professors, Andrew Stewart, Professor Shema Crystal. Joellen Riley, Professor Tess Hardy, uh, to ma- name a couple, and I'll refer to them generally as labour law scholars because yeah. um, it's it's joint submission. And I'm going to a guess that the labour law scholars don't like it, right? The Actually, some it's um I, I mean yes, m- more against than compared to the Business Council of Australia, which is the <laughs> yeah. other one that I that I had a look at. Um, but um, they have some very different takes, which yeah. is which has been interesting. Uh, so I'll just start with Professor David Peets. Um, he was saying that the bill would render irrelevant what the employer actually does, um, making the only consideration at law what they contracted into, even if that's not actually what was implemented. Um, he was also taking issue with the fact that most casuals have been with their employees for more than a year, uh, and this was based on uh, his assessment of the ABS statistics um, from 2013, um, and it said that at least half worked the same hours week to week. So he didn't think that it would be fair uh, I suppose, to just follow what's in the contract. Yeah. The labor law scholars um, were happy to include a definition, said that it was welcomed. Uh, they weren't particularly keen on this one. Um, yeah. So uh, they just felt that the, um, that the definition of a casual uh, could include a situation where you start genuinely as a casual and the employment relationship develops into something more permanent, in which case perhaps it could be changed. Um, and their particular issue was um, with, the, with the definition was that there weren't enough protections available for employers who might um, recklessly call their employees casuals when in fact they hired them as permanent full-time based on their pattern of hours and their continu- their continuous commitment to those employees. And um, the Business Council uh, of Australia... Yeah, um, I'll just comment too about mm, the academics before you go on to Yeah, that. of course. Like, like, I yeah. think that they're right um, in, in one critical sense, all of them in the sense that it really does, the legislation as drafted puts a lot of power to the employer on how the engagement is made and the formalities of the engagement. 
And in many ways, that's contrary to a lot of the principles that we observe generally in Australian labour law and the Fair Work Act, which has always prided itself on, first of all, legislative protection being above and beyond what's contracted. You can't mm. contract out of legislative protection. So, for instance, you can't, you can't create a contract which says that unfair dismissal won't apply to your employment or mm. you can't contract out of you know, discrimination provisions or any of those things. Mm. And, and from that point of view, they are, the legislation allows employers to do that. The, on the flip side, and I'm interested to know what the, the various business councils have said, that on the flip side of that, though, is that in a way what employers want is certainty. That's exactly what they said. That's exactly what they said. <laughs> we'll go on um, there. Yeah. Uh, well, they just said that the Rosada and Scheme decisions had created so much uncertainty that it required a, a legislative uh, solution, which I don't think any of us disagree with. I mean, there was, and not to speak for everyone, but, yeah. <laughs> but uh, you know, the lack of a casual definition has been an issue. Yeah, and I've, um, I think I've said before, um, I don't know on the podcast, but I've definitely said it, that, that I believe fundamentally the federal court decisions are a cry for legislative intervention. Mm. You know, and I know that Christian Porter came out and criticised the Rosado decision, but I think the federal court is saying define casual. Yeah, yeah. You know, and, and, and so often when, when the, you know, the common law activist judges do, that they, 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 they see the limits of what they should, you know, that they see a problem with the law that is not really theirs to solve. And quite often, I think it was even last week I was saying, that last month I was saying that, a result of that often uh, when we see a common law decision that seems on the face of it to be irrational they're really just identifying a gap in the legislation and I'm mm. 100% sure I don't know I'm not friends with those federal court judges <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> um, yeah no well that, that they would agree with you um, they said that to not introduce such a solution would be to perpetuate the current uncertainty that has thrown thousands of existing employment arrangements into doubt which I think is what they're talking about in terms of the potential debt that employers are facing if everybody yeah. suddenly makes a claim based on Rosada and Scheme. Yeah, and retrospective claims, they don't work. And, and, and whether you're pro-economy or you know, I'm not trying to say the economy is more important than human rights, but where you have a situation where you set your prices, you make your arrangements based on certain law, mm. um, it's sort of an unacceptable situation to then face five, six, seven years of retrospective, um, you know, well, a lot of people, and I'm sure the unions would say that, these guys knew that they were full-time and they deserve everything they get because they should have engaged in a small drug. Fine, and that's, that's yeah. fine. But I think the certainty is an important point. And there's no question that the coalition are always going to make laws that are favourable to business. Um, that That's part of the whole political dynamic that we live with. And as I said to you guys when we were discussing this before the podcast, I think, you know, it's open for the ALP to win power and change this mm. and make it more employee favourable. But I, I certainly think the certainty is is important. Uh, Andrew Stewart actually made a further submission uh, in his individual capacity, not as part of the rest of the labour law scholars, um, where he kind of went into the nitty-gritty of the definition, um, and he took issue with using or including the word indefinite in the definition, because he said that taking, taken literally, the, wor the wording would encompass all forms of fixed-term employment on the basis that such employment is, of its very nature, not indefinite. So even if you have a full-time employment contract for a fixed two-year term, that person would be classified as a casual or, or could be classified as a casual by a court yeah. on the basis of this definition. Yeah, yeah. Or, or more, I'm not going to correct you, but I, I think 
I go one step further and say a fixed-term two-year person could be engaged by an employer as a casual mm. and it would satisfy the definition. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They could still be engaged by the employer as full-time as well. Yes. On a fixed-term basis. Okay, so what do the, what do the unions say? Is that similar? They presumably got a similar opinion to the labour law professors. Yes, unions are not really happy about the current definition. Um, so the ACTU supports a statutory definition of casual employment, which is reflective of the common law, which is actually not the case because the bills propose a definition of casual employment based only on the original offer made to the employee without taking into account any subsequent conduct of the parties. So that's their major criticism. Um, and they also noted that the actual provision will allow employers to casualize um, while to the permanent employment. Yeah. Um, so instead of allowing less casual employment, it will to the other way around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's gonna it's gonna increase the the level of casual employment, whereas the certainly the hope of the union movement and the you know and the ALP and the political left generally was to have a definition that had the effect of stemming the current mm. or, or or bringing casual people to permanency. Yeah, yeah. and the ASU and the UWU have pretty much um, the same view. The AS ASU um, saying that the proposed definition places an unfair reliance on negotiation at the commencement of employment. Yeah. yeah. And that rely on the employer. Yeah. It does. Um, the RAFU actually agreed and they disliked the definition as well. So they thought it was just in and of itself a lie because, in their opinion, the vast majority of casual employment in Australia is premised upon firm advance commitments to continuing work. Um, so to specify that kind of relationship through legislation, just they don't believe is accurate. They also took issue with the impact that such definition might have on an employee's entitlement to unfair dismissal and their rights there. So they said that if a worker has at law no firm advance commitment to continuing work, then people who want to exploit labour will argue there cannot have been a reasonable expectation of further regular and systematic work. So the contract and definition will be used by the exploiters of labour to deny workers purportedly, purportedly engaged in casual employment um, and it will impact on their rights. Yeah, I'm not so sure about that last one. I, I, I think that currently the protection for unfair dismissal is for um, regular and systematic casuals that have a reasonable expectation of ongoing work. Um, and I think that's quite a different threshold from a firm advance commitment. I think the firm advance commitment is a much higher bar than reasonable expectation. And certainly the way that the Fair Work Commission has interpreted that um, from a jurisdictional perspective for unfair dismissal is it's been a very low bar. And the concept of reasonable and systematic engagement has not been regular hours, um, and I don't have the cases at hand, but they generally are looking for a casual that is engaged regularly. Um, so if they look at the last 13 
pay fortnights or 26 pay weeks and see that the vast majority of the occasions um, the employee has been engaged in some capacity, even though there's significant variation, they will find jurisdiction to hear the unfair dismissal. And I don't see that changing. We should note as well, though, that there are proposed amendments in relation to um, what I said at the beginning, where we have this odd situation where we have a regular casual employee defined in the modern awards as being eligible to request conversion. We've got a long-term casual in the context of parental leave, um, and that's one that's regularly and systematically engaged for um, 12 months. And then you've got the regular and systematic casual for unfair dismissal purposes um, that is uh, engaged for six months for a large business and 12 months for a small business. So you've got all these different um, things at play. It's probably a good time to talk about conversion anyway, but I noticed that in adopting the casual conversion or the casual right to convert into the NES, they've also adopted the definition of regular casual employee, which is a national system employee of a national system employer, is a regular casual employee if at a particular time, at that time, the employee is a casual employee and the employee has been employed by the employer on a regular and systematic basis. And that has now been adopted for the purposes of parental leave and for unfair dismissal. So we do have some consolidation there, but I don't think, and, and that's the difference, it's not a casual employee, the definition in itself is, um, is, is one thing, but then you've got the, the employee being engaged by the employer on a regular and systematic basis, which is a lower threshold. So I don't accept that so much. Um, you know, I do, I mean, you know, I, I think calling the definition a lie. <laughs> I mean, the statutory <laughs> definition is a statutory definition. I mean, that certainly it, it is a big shift to be saying that the engagement of the casual and the terms of the engagement defines the nature of the employment throughout mm. the employment. Um, and, you know, the, and the, so from that point of view, the, the unions and the academics do have a point. Um, I think it needs to be read in conjunction with the right to conversion, though, because um, the right to conversion um, is really gets enlivened after 12 months. And so what is the proposed legislation? As I said before, it has been in the awards, but this is now proposed to, co to cover everybody, every national system employee um, will, will have this right. So how does that, how is it proposed to work? Yeah, so basically um, an employer must make an offer for, for conversion to a casual employee if they've been employed for a 12-month period and in the last six months of that employment they have worked a regular pattern of hours on an ongoing basis and the employee could continue to work this pattern of hours as a full-time or part-time employee without significant adjustment. Yeah. And so is that after 12 months or is it? Uh, yeah, after the 12 months. And after then they have to refer back to being a regular that. casual employee. Yeah. And right. then you look back on what the last six months has looked like. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So then also they prescribe the form of the offer. So it must be in writing. Um, if employees have been working full-time hours, they must be offered a full-time position. They've been working less than 38. Yeah part-time, um, and the offer must be made within 21 days of that 12-month period. Right. Yeah. So there's some urgency to it. Also, an employer is not required to make an offer um, if there are reasonable business grounds to yeah. not make the offer, and then they go on to define 
things that will be considered for reasonable business grounds. Yeah. Yeah, so it's pretty similar to the award term. It's fundamentally different in one way, and that is the obligation is to make an offer unless there are reasonable business grounds. At present, under the modern awards, there's a right to make a request which can only be refused under reasonable business grounds, which is also forming part of this new legislation. But the onus then is on the employer to actually make the offer. So they'll be in default of the legislation if they don't make the, if just nothing happens. Is that right? Yeah. So they, even if the employer decides that the employee isn't eligible after the 12 months, either because for the last six months they haven't worked that regular pattern um, or there aren't reasonable business grounds, they have to still inform the employee in writing of why and set all of that out. And if they do offer it, must be in writing and the employee has to accept or decline within 21 days as well. Yeah. Okay, so what are the reasonable business grounds? They're they're similar to the modern awards. They're example grounds, aren't they? Yeah. They include... So they've said reasonable grounds for deciding not to make an offer include, one, that the employee's position will cease to exist in the following 12 months, Uh, two, the hours of work which the employee is required to work will be significantly reduced, or there will be a significant change in the days or times that the employee hours of work are required and the employee can not make themselves available to meet those times and hours. And also if making an offer would not comply with a recruitment or selection process um, as required under state and commonwealth law. Yeah, yeah. I don't really know what they mean by that. I think it's a catch-all. So it's where where you've got basically, (laughs) where you've got merit-based selection criteria Uh, um, and and you'd be falling foul of that criteria if you made the offer of a permanent employment. I think that's just a let out for those guys yeah Yeah. most of those exist in state government which are not national system anyway but um you know some of the universities for instance are national system employees and they have Mm merit-based systems so that that, that's an important exclusion there but really i mean i suppose i mean i i feel like that softens that harshness if you've got a situation where if someone's been regular for 12 months and you have to come up with reasonable business grounds not to make them an offer, does that alleviate what some of the academics and the unions are concerned about or, or do they say different? Well, the unions think that actually is not a real offer for casual conversions right. because of the question of reasonable grounds. Right. And so for them under the legislation an employer may decide not to make an offer or not to accept an employee request if they have reasonable grounds not to do so and that the definition for those reasonable grounds is too broad yeah right and there is a lack of enforcement yes i mean potentially i mean i i i get the point i i i think you know there's still section 44 which makes Contraventions of the National Employment Standards, a civil penalty provision. So I, I think that, you know, it's not going to be just something that you can just willy-nilly say, no, I don't feel like it. Um, I think it is also important to note, which I did miss before, that casual conversion will be considered a right um, or an obligation on an employer. So an employer must not reduce or vary an employee's hours or terminate yeah, yeah, them to avoid those avoid obligations. Also, it will yeah. be considered a workplace right under the general protections as well. Yeah, 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 right, that's important. Yeah. Yeah, which means that, you know, adverse action to prevent the exercise of a workplace, right? For example, saying, you know, suspending someone or 
or disciplining them for some bogus conduct on the grounds that they're getting close to their 12-month anniversary yeah. creates a, another cause of action um, in relation to, um, you know, the general protections, which is quite interesting. Also, we note as well that there's some quirks in it. I, I remember they've still got the right to request conversion, am I right? But they yes. forego that right if they've refused the offer and a whole lot of, you know... It's really messy. Yeah. Um, to be honest, I was reading it that I was actually going to ask you about it earlier. Yeah. Um, basically, you still have the right to request it, you know, with the 12 and six month criteria yeah. that we discussed before, but you can't have refused an employer's offer in the last six months. And the employer cannot have told you if you've requested previously that there was no reasonable business grounds. Because of reasonable business grounds, they could not make the offer. Right. Um that makes you ineligible for another six months, but you can ask again after six months. Yeah, and yeah. also that the employer has not refused a previous request um, and you haven't made that request within 21 days after the first 12-month offer. So they're just kind of setting some time around yeah, yeah. it, really. Yeah. And look, again, that, that doesn't surprise me in the sense that that's the union position. And I, and I do know the unions, when I've done enterprise bargaining with them, are very keen on the idea of sort of an automatic right to convert as opposed to a right to request. Yeah. But again, business groups are very keen on the idea of not being sort of um, hogtied into, into permanent employment, um, you know, where there are circumstances where, for instance, if they know that business is about to, if it's foreseeable that business is about to decline in some way, et cetera, et cetera. But I mean, I think probably the real issues with it as as probably Emily's said with the unions is probably more that your sophisticated employer can come up with reasonable business grounds that are quite cogent and convincing if they really need to. Yeah, and sure. that's gonna be that's gonna be the issue. But the employers at least the legislation provides that employers have to stay ahead of the game and actually fulfil these obligations and say why. Um, first of all, they've got to comply with the timeline. They've either got to make the offer or, or say the reasons in writing, and those reasons need to be, you know, will, will need to be persuasive to a certain degree. So, in your yeah. situation where you've just got someone with advance, which actually does have an advance firm commitment of ongoing hours, it's going to be hard to find those reasonable business business grounds, and that's that's in my view, and certainly advice to employers that are listening. That's going to be something that is going to be a big part of their dealings with casuals okay. and, and in my view really a bit of a disincentive to, well, to actually, not converting in a sense because this, as we said in the very first podcast isn't really that bad to have permanent employees when your employees are permanent yeah uh, if they're genuinely casual um you know for instance if they're in an on-demand market where you just don't know if the demand is going to be there, then then you're going to have reasonable business grounds. Well, it's interesting that you'd say that. I mean, we have some, you know, unlikely allies between the Labor Law Academics and the Business Council of Australia who both said that the, um, that the administrative burden that this places on employers is quite large, especially if you're talking about an employer with a huge cohort of casual employees. Yeah. Um, that being said... The labor law academics, I think in their words, they, they don't oppose the notion of creating a general right um, to be offered a conversion to permanent employment. 
Um, but they don't see it as an effective way of dealing with the misuse of casual employment, um, especially in situations where the casual employment was from the very beginning, in all practical terms, full-time employment. Yeah. Um, and they made the point, along with Professor David Peets as well, that there are very few instances of casuals even asking for conver- conversion, let alone getting it, Yeah. which I think perhaps... There could be some change if it's being offered to them. Yeah. Um, I don't think that should be overlooked. I, I think that's a big change. I, I think it's a bigger change than probably gets credit is the fact that the, the actual obligation on making the offer for that exact reason that you, you take away the idea that employees are somehow, because, you know, the request for casual conversion already um, is, is a workplace right, but you think, well, is because it's a... Uh, when for a modern ward employee, yeah. um, so you sort of think, okay, they're protected from adverse action against making the request. But in real terms, is there situations out there where people don't make the request because they're afraid of, mm. you know, recriminations from the employer? So. Whereas you're actually shifting the onus back on the employer. When you're talking about administrative burden too, I think a lot of the reason why, and I talk to employers a lot. That, that can't exactly put their finger on why they want everyone to be casual. And you explain, okay, well, these people are protected from unfair dismissal. They've got parental leave. Mm. You're paying them the 25% extra. Um, all these risks of, of Rosado-type claims, why not just make them full-time or part-time? And really the only thing is redundancy. And redundancy, in most cases, is not nearly as significant a liability as repaying a whole heap of annual leave and personally to employees. So in many ways, I think one of the key incentives has always been it's just easier. I don't have to think about annual leave. I don't have to think about personal leave. Um, And this notion that there's less commitment to the employees. And I think creating a system where there is a greater administrative um, load associated with casual employees could potentially incentivise some employers to, to just to just convert. Well, the Business Council of Australia is saying that that's actually working against the intention of the bill and that there would be huge costs of having to manually check the hours of each employee across the last six months to see how much of that was a pattern of regular hours or a commitment uh, and therefore whether they're... Who was saying that? The business? business Council of Australia was saying that it would be a big cost for employers with a, with a big cohort of casuals to have to look through their records and determine who is entitled to be converted and the fact that you would have to then also write a letter no matter what to say whether or not it's offered or not. Yeah. So what do they want? Actually, they had a couple of amendments. <laughs> um, the First of all, they said that um, the requirement should be streamlined to require employers to notify employees of their new right to convert, but only assess their eligibility when they request for conversion. Yeah. But that would, again, uh, substantially change the, the big change about offering conversion yeah, yeah, yeah. that would put the onus back on back on yeah. the employees. Um, alternatively, they were talking about transitional arrangements um, that the conversion right would only commence uh, six months after the commencement of the rest of the bill, and that would give employers a chance to to kind of catch up. Yeah, and, and put systems in place to make it easier to make those calculations and determinations. Yeah, well, I guess then we just really need to talk about the casual. So there's two, two more issues, and, and Essie's hit on it already. The casual loading, and then the issue of part-time flexibility. So the casual loading and the, and the issues that, obviously, that's the big ticket item as far as the, 
business, the, you know, industry groups are concerned because of this fear that, you know, what's been referred to as double dipping in the sense that people have been paid a casual loading in, in lieu of um, annual leave and personal leave. Um, they then make a claim and then they get paid annual leave and personal leave, not just on their salary, but actually annual leave and personal leave on the loading itself. So it's almost sort of a double or, or triple dipping, if you like. Um, I think I certainly know a lot of permanent part-time employees that would would, would take offence to the idea of all their casual colleagues suddenly getting leave. Mm-hmm. Um, and they would say, well, what about my 25%? <laughs> so it's a difficult issue, and I certainly think that's the one that the Parliament have been most motivated to address. So what are they proposing in terms of that? Noting that the, the Fair Work regulation backfired um, because it wasn't, you know, wasn't successful in the Rosado case. So what have they tried to do? Here. Yeah, so what they've said is if an employee is described as a casual and they have been paid an identifiable amount to compensate them for not having one or more entitlements during their employment period and they were not a casual employee and that employee makes a claim to be paid an amount for one or more of the relevant entitlements for the employment period, when making orders, a court must reduce any amount payable for the entitlements by an amount equal to the loading amount or then there's that part that's really yeah. complicated. <laughs> but no, stop there because that's good. So what they're basically saying is that if if they're making a claim based on being a casual but then the court determines they're not actually a casual, yeah. the, the legislation then provides that the, the court must, and I think that's a really important word in legislation, mm-hmm. the court must reduce it but not below zero by the amount of the loading. And I think those caveats are more like if they make a partial reduction, it gives there to give regard to the entitlement, whether the, the loading was specified and identifiable, whether the entitlements are identifiable, et cetera, et cetera, yeah. um, and really what the value of those entitlements are. So it's giving the court a little bit of a free reign, but it's basically insisting upon them making the reduction. Yeah. Um, so that's quite strong. They also called out um, specifically what the relevant entitlements include. Yeah. Um, which was annual leave, personal and carers leave, compassionate leave, payment for absence on a public holiday, payment in lieu of notice for termination and redundancy pay. And also that those entitlements can be accrued but untaken um, when you make yeah. a claim. Okay. Okay. So even redundant. So that's redundancy too. Yeah. Okay. That's interesting. So what's the what's the general industry and the union feedback on on the proposals? They don't like it. Well, <laughs> no, obviously they don't like it. Uh, yeah. So um, main point there is that this definition is in contradiction with the Rosato decision. Yeah. Um, so for the ACTU, the actual uh, provision removes right for employees who've been wrongly classified to recover their entitlements. Yeah. So obviously, like, and it's going to have retrospective effect. As well, not retrospective effect. Well, that's what we discussed. About that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it, but in effect, it's going to be retrospective by the fact that the claims that haven't been brought yet, but they might be, you know, causes of action that have arisen but haven't been commenced could be defeated in effect or not completely defeated but but could be offset in this way by the by the casual loading 
Yeah. And for the ASU, this would be also a significant departure from the common law principles that an employer and employee cannot contract out of the statutory minima and that an employer may only set off a payment against an entitlement unless those amounts are separately identifiable. Yeah, right. Yeah, the Business Council of Australia, of course. Um, I mean, they... they, (laughs) Yes. $8 billion back to us. (laughs) (laughs) We'll take it. (laughs) Uh, Yes, I think they brought it back to that, you know, the need for certainty and and, and so on. But um, but it's interesting because I think uh, both the academics and, and the Business Council of Australia um, jumped on the discussion about whether it's res- retrospective or not. Um, and the Business Council of Australia actually suggested that it's not retrospective uh, as the parties to casual employment arrangements prior to the scheme decision would have entered those agreements on the basis that there could not be any entitlement to paid leave given that the a casual loading was being paid. Yeah. Which I don't necessarily uh, agree with because it's still about what was the law at the time. And just because they entered into a contract that said um, that this is the situation doesn't necessarily mean that that contract was correct or proper representation about what the law allowed. Yeah. Well, it's a tough one. I mean, I, I think it is. I, I think it has I think it has a form of retrospective effect, but only because the claims haven't been brought yet. Yeah, you know, it purports the legislation purports to um, affect the capacity of complainants to make claims, or applicants to make claims mm. under a cause of action. Um, they're not changing the cause of action. No, yeah, they're just just they're just changing the available remedies. So, and of course, it's hard to say at what point did they, you know, yeah. arguably become permanent compared to yeah casual as well. Um, but, um, yeah, the, the labor law scholars, on the other hand, uh, just basically said that if, if they wanted to introduce retrospective provisions, then they should have included more in the explanatory memoranda to explain why it was necessary for it to be retrospective. Yeah. And, um, no, I don't think it's retrospective. Well, like it is. It has a retrospective effect about future claims. Well, it has, it has a prospective <laughs> effect about claims based on things that have happened in the past. Mm. But it's not retrospective. But then they're the academics, so I'm not going to argue with them. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Andrew Stewart actually went down the road of a very niche point, I think, is that what about the people who had um, already taken their employers to court on the basis that they should be paid that 25%? I'm sorry, that they had, even though they had been paid that 25% loading, that they should also be paid their leave entitlements so those from the, the skiing decision and the yeah. Rosado decision, um, could the employers now go after them to, to, to get those payments back based on this law? Yeah. Which I... Which none, like if the, if the court's already made the order. You yeah. See, that's where I think that's the critical distinction between the retrospective and perspective. Mm. What, what this is, is mandating is, is, is conditions around the making of an order when in relation employee. to claims, yeah, yeah I would find difficult to made. Yeah, I would find it difficult to believe that the court would backtrack on that. Well, it just can't. Because I don't of, think the legislation no. allows them to do that. Um, but it is—it's a really interesting piece of legislation for that point that it does sort of extinguish some potential claims that are out there now. 
Yes. You know, having said that, and I've said this continuously, Rosado and Skeen were very unique circumstances too. I think, you know, people have panicked a little bit. And both relate to labour hire workers, which is an issue of its yeah. own. With year-long yeah. rosters too. Yes. Yeah. Which is a, um, which was a major problem for them. Um, and, and I think there's issues around the identifiability of the of the loading and a whole lot of different stuff. Yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I don't think, I think the $8 billion is inflated. Yeah. I don't think every casual in Australia suddenly yes. got the same case that Rosado or Skeen had. But, um, no, it's, it's certainly, certainly interesting. But I think that's the big, as I said, the big ticket item for the coalition is to resolve this 25% issue. Mm. And I think a lot of the stuff about COVID-19 and, and the rest of it is, um, is really this is the response to Rosado and Skeen. Mm. Um, but... The interesting one for me is the last one that we'll discuss and we'll probably have to wrap it up pretty soon because we've talked for ages. The part-time flexibility, what's being proposed there. Yes. So my notes on this are really long, so I'm going to try yeah, to make it right. um, a bit quicker. Yeah. In give, summary, the, give us the guts, give us the essence. Yeah. I'll give you the spark notes. <laughs> so can we say that, the spark notes version? Um, basically it applies... There's a list of the modern awards, modern award covered employees that it applies to. Um, in summary, basically retail and hospitality. Yeah. So basically, what it is is the ability to for employers to enter into a simplified agreement with their part-time employees to work additional hours. So an employer and employee may enter into an agreement to work additional hours if. The identified modern award applies. The employee is part-time and that employee's ordinary hours are at least 16 hours per week. Um, so it really just makes yeah. – that, that doesn't attract overtime. Um, yeah. So in the modern awards at the moment, anything in excess of the, of the, of the normal part-time hours attracts overtime rates and that's the issue. Whereas and I think certainly um, a lot of – hospitality employers would you know certainly report to me and I used to be one years ago that part-time employment in those contexts is just not tenable at all um, and not everybody in fact almost all of your prospective employees don't want to be full-time they want to be less than full-time and part-time just doesn't work I think that's what the hospitality industry is reporting mm-hmm. so while you've got these people saying oh casual 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 um, on the whole, a lot of business owners would like to be part-time, but you need to have that flexibility. Um, I guess there's also an argument that it's a sort of slippery slope or something. Um, has there been much discussion around that from from, um, the, from the unions or from the... Well, Professor Peets uh, said that uh, part-time employees take, take on the hours flexibility that casuals currently have, So, um, but they would do so at lower pay rates. Yeah. Uh, and that being, I suppose, the, the slippery slope. Yeah. Um, and he also noted that this could have two effects. Uh, the first would enable employers to reduce the guaranteed hours of existing part-time employees, knowing that they can increase them oh, later yeah, if they need Yeah, and I agree it. with that. That's true. Um, and the other was that employers would face a reduced incentive to take on additional workers because uh, they could cheaply increase the hours of existing workers when demand increased without having to um, incur the costs of recruiting and training new people. Yeah. So what that would do to the market generally is the other argument. Like slow down the market velocity, like labour market velocity. 
Yeah. I think they're interesting points. I think they all presume that there are such a thing as part-time employees in hospitality, which I just, I don't think is the case. I mean, I think retail is a bit different. Um, but, you know, and I think there's some dangers there. I think those dangers all apply. But um, what about the unions? Yeah, it's pretty much the same. Like they're saying the part-time provisions will remove predictable hours and pay from the workers. Yeah. And that it makes things harder for them also to uh, refuse uh, those extra hours. Yes, yeah. because yeah, I think that have to be, it has to be genuine agreement, doesn't it? Yeah, so it says that an employer must not require an employee to enter into the agreement and also that it is um, protected again as a workplace right. Yeah. So either entering into an agreement or terminating the agreement um, because you don't want to do the additional hours anymore, they, that has to be protected. Yeah. So for the uh, union, pretty much like they're making part-time employee um, as a casual but without the loading. Yeah. But I mean, at the, at, at, at the moment, and this is the other thing that's sort of commonly forgotten, is that you can ask a part-time person to do reasonable overtime. You just have to pay them overtime. Mm-hmm. So there's that funny grey area between do you want to voluntarily do extra at ordinary hours and you or still, am I going to direct you to do extra at overtime? And you're still entitled to overtime under the legislation if, yeah. like, say, you have worked outside the you know regular hours of work or you've worked outside your maximum hours yeah. per week um, or per day anyway yeah. so there's not and you still get penalty yeah, rates yeah, that's, that's all right. still there yeah and if you if you're in a in the shop and or in the, in the restaurant and you get asked to stay back three hours because someone's phoned in sick there's obviously not any type of written agreement and there's the requisite compulsion to make that an overtime event i think really what it's talking about is the idea that sort of someone that's Already in the 16-hour threshold is important too because less than that, really, if you want variability, they're saying you need to be a casual. Yeah. But um, I, I don't know. I, I find that there's, a, there's an element of contradiction in all of this in the sense that there's been this push for permanency of employment that whenever you talk about taking that 25% away, there's a problem. <laughs> so, so to me, um, something's got to give. Um you know, from that point of view. And, and certainly since um, the middle of 18, when we had the award casual conversions and I've assisted a lot of clients on, on requests for conversion, almost every time that you say to an employee, well, actually your rates, you're not going to get the casual loading if you become permanent, they, they change their mind. Mm. So, um, you know, and, and maybe this is like my chicken and egg free range example on the last podcast, <laughs> maybe there is a requirement for us to step in and actually just change the rules, you know, because because the supply and demand is, is not working in some sort of fundamental way. Well, and Professor Peets would agree with that. I mean, he, yeah. he, he made the point that no other country really allows employers to buy out their obligations to provide their employees with leave. Yeah, yeah. right. You know, we shouldn't either. That, that you know, that was his, yeah. his stand on that. Yeah. But I'm not against, and I think that's a really interesting idea where if you actually say, for instance, okay, everybody gets leave, which is worth, say, 12%, everyone from now on gets leave, casuals get a 13% loading. Like, I don't hate that idea at all, Mm. Um, and especially not if it's combined with some strategic transitional increases, you know, to the modern awards and the rest of it. But I think just saying, okay, everyone's a full-timer, 
is effectively the same as giving all casuals a 25% pay increase from one day to the next, um, which I think from one day to the next is not sustainable in exactly the same way as back paying $8 billion is not sustainable either. Yeah. I mean, it is a messy situation, but look, I think certainty in the legislation I think is positive. I think it goes, my view is it's a little um, a little too far in, in one direction, but, um, you know, if the opposition parties um, get a chance after the next election, I think they can... They can change it. <laughs> but there still seems to be this consensus for, for certainty. And, you know, the Business Council of Australia was also acknowledging that one of the best things about the bill is this proposal that we would make part-time employment more feasible because currently it's just so complex for employers to try and navigate around the award requirements and so it on. Is. I think um, the award part-time requirements and some of the awards uh, make, it, make it impossible. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why there's so, such a lot of it is casualization. And certainly as a, as a former restaurant um, owner, I, I tried on several occasions to introduce schemes to implement part-time work because the commitment level generally from permanent employees is better. I was, a, was, an, was an objective and I found it mm. very, very difficult to, um, to implement at any time um, because people wanted to be casual. Yeah. They wanted, I was in a university market and they wanted to go away for 13, 14 weeks of the year. Well, on the They wanted the extra 25%. And I think that's, that's a big part of the um, economy that is actually being pushed to one side with a, you know, and not, not properly acknowledged. Well, the Business Council actually also was saying that the, um, that, you know, on that note, that the 16 hour requirement would be a hindrance for, university students to to, to become part-time employees yeah. because the, the, they suggest that instead of a 16-hour requirement, it should be an eight-hour requirement so that if university students were, you know, for example, in exam periods, then they could still change their hours um, if if they wanted and needed without being told that they can't or without being told that they have to permanently change their hours, I think, because currently, of course, they could agree that from now on we'll work these days and those hours, but that would be, a, again, a permanent agreement that would, again, have to be changed after exams yeah. are over. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think we're making it even more confusing than that horrific Facebook comment thread that I uh, read the other day. <laughs> I think we've, we've sent the, the, the general knowledge backwards on this point. Have we covered everything? Because we've been yes. talking for a long time. I think All we right. have. We'll wrap it up. Um, thanks for listening. If you're still here, um, you can subscribe to this podcast and drop us a line via LinkedIn or um, via email um, on our website. If you'd like to have a copy of the book, An Employer's Guide to Australian Employment Law, um, give us a call. Um, in the next couple of weeks, we're going to be publishing just a small pamphlet on um lawful and ethical termination of employment um it's uh it's something we're just hoping to assist people generally look out for that on our web page and on social media our next podcast we're going to talk specifically about that publication and about um, termination of employment and some of the risks and processes involved so if you've got questions on that that we want you want us to address um let us know otherwise we will leave you to uh have some Panadol to help with that <laughs> headache that we probably caused. 
um, and we'll uh, look forward to talking to you next time.